Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the podcast for cultural reformation. This is Worldview Wednesday. I'm Ryan Aris. I'm joined, as always, by Joe Boot and Nathan Oblak, and we're delighted to have with us once again Joe's dog, Cromwell, and Mike Thiessen's also here. <laughs> Get that order correct. <laughs> Guys, welcome. Good to be it's here. It's a good joke. <laughs> but... If it happens again, maybe we won't bring it up. I'll just throw something if it happens again. I think we all know that. Welcome, Mike. We're glad to have you. So, guys, we're here today. No, I'll back up. We were here last week, and we were talking about apologetics and, Joe, what you introduced as a transcendental approach to apologetics. We're here today uh, to, uh, to just consider, first of all, how I'd like to start by considering... How, the, how does a transcendental approach to apologetics apply in the real world? And right now we've got a, a pretty vivid test case. Most of, uh, most of our listeners will be aware of the situation with Pastor James Coates in Grace Life Edmonton, where a pastor has been uh, put, uh, put in prison for refusing to shut his church, for continuing to hold services as they're accustomed to and uh, you just you got to look at that and think there are some some starkly competing worldview commitments in play here so joe if we can uh, if we can start out by commenting on on the one side what uh, what is it that moves a church and a pastor to uh, to defy a, a government order and then what is it that moves a civil magistrate to take that pastor and keep him in prison? Sure. So when we uh, discussed cultural apologetics last week, we talked about the fact that the, the questions concerning the faith are becoming cultural, civilizational. That's right. And that uh, a cultural apologetic is fundamentally about going to the religious root. It's radical. It goes to, tries to go to the religious root of an issue to worldview foundations in order to uh, both expose the uh, competing foundations of opposing worldviews uh, and then to show that the Christian world and life view really meets the, the conditions uh, of being intelligible, satisfying, um, and workable, basically, um, and true, true, meaningful, fulfilling. So we talked in broad terms about that, but in particular, we said that uh, this view of apologetics means that we believe that the defense of the faith consists of a defense of the Christian philosophy of life, not merely a narrow defense of a few uh, propositions of uh, dogmatic truth that we may mm. believe in the church, but it, it involves the defense of the whole Christian philosophy of life. And that, of course, would include the political sphere. So when we ask ourselves, well, what would it be then within the Christian world and life view that would motivate uh, a pastor to be ready to defy uh, uh, lockdown orders, um, uh, the restrictions of health authorities, and so on? Uh, we would need to look to the uh, 
scriptural foundations of the lordship of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, which is two central themes of the biblical message. Actually, I was thinking a little bit today about um, what Abraham Kuyper said uh, when he was looking at Europe back at the end of the 19th century. And he said, and I quote, Christian Europe has dethroned the one who was once its king. And the world city has become the queen under whose scepter people willingly bow down. And uh, the issue for, you know, and he saw that 100 years ago, that this is what was happening. And I think the fact that we've reached a point now in the West, well, while we've got Ontario uh, releasing 25% of its prison population of criminals Mm. uh, in order to ostensibly not spread a virus Mm -hmm. you've got a pastor in alberta who's not a criminal being thrown into prison uh in the midst of the same situation yeah that's that's actually the national average i beg your pardon uh, not Not just just ontario Ontario. so nationally 25 percent. people should be aware of this 25 percent of the prison population has been tipped out Mm -hmm. uh and and yet we've got pastors being thrown into prison so that obviously does highlight some um, some worldview commitments for somebody like James Coates and the other pastors across this province and and, uh, and other provinces that have remained open um, are facing charges or have uh, continued to defy the orders and evade charges. Uh, they have a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and his kingdom that they regard as presently in conflict with the claims of the state to a total uh, jurisdictional authority over the various areas of life. And this probably brings us to a really foundational uh, point about the Christian over against the pagan view of the state. The, the humanistic pagan view of the state basically sees the state as, the, as a totalizing mm. institution, which is to say it sees the state as the whole and all the other institutional elements in a society the church families business and so on as the parts strictly speaking of course the state the parts of the state are actually provinces and municipalities not churches families and so on mm-hmm. but the pagan state viewed the, the the pagan view sees the state as subsuming all of life and therefore being able to relate to all the other aspects Uh, and institutions and structures within human society in this parts-to-whole fashion, giving them a sense of total control. That also means, in the pagan view, that the state is beyond or above the law because it's the source of law. It's the giver of law. It doesn't recognize a transcendent authority. It doesn't recognize the lordship of Christ and his kingdom as the root and foundation uh, that links all the parts of society together. Instead, it sees a human institution as the key to holding all of society together. Therefore, it treats them in parts the whole fashion and places itself essentially beyond law. And this is a critical point Mm. in in people Mm. understanding what's at stake with what these pastors are saying, what somebody like James Coates has been willing to even go to prison to make the point that Jesus Christ is Lord, his kingdom is the integrating concept for human society, not the state. The state is a part, it's an an institution that God has established and given a limited 
jurisdictional role as a Ministry of Public Justice. It's qualified for its juridical function. It has a jural function to maintain a harmony of public legal order. Emphasis on the word public legal order. Its boundaries, the boundaries of its jurisdiction, is delimited by the private legal orders that exist within society. The, the university, the business, the family, the church, and so on and so forth. So there's obviously, we could develop at length that discussion, but that's the overall point, is that uh, what we've seen now is that some within the Canadian state, the Canadian bureaucracy, the, the legislature, um, within the um, uh, various branches of government, have, have, have shifted the position over the last hundred years. We've shifted our position back to a pagan view of the state, which gives it this mm. total authority, total jurisdiction, puts it above law, even uh, the claim to be above any religious law from God. Um, and and this is what pastors such as James Coates believe has been infringed um, and and is therefore um, a violation. It's it's a massive overreach of the state's limited limited authority into the life of into the life of the church. So that's the I would say that, that that's the basic distinction. The Christian view, we and we our listeners have obviously heard this before, but in the Christian view, in the biblical view, you've got the absolute sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of God means effectively the reign and rule of God over all men and all institutions. And all authority is derivative, it's derived and limited by him in terms of various different spheres of authority that God has clearly established. We call that principle, the biblical principle, sphere sovereignty. Um, Abraham Kuyper was the one who articulated it most clearly in the in the 19th century. And before I hand it to uh, one of you for a comment, let me just ex- uh, articulate it in this way. Herman Doyverd, who developed this Kuyperian um, point um, in his book, The Christian Idea of the State, says, and he makes this, I think, crystal clear. Listen, if we listen closely, I know that sometimes some of our quotes for our listeners, they have to sit down and, <laughs> you know, hold their cup of tea slow still it down just a, a moment, slow it down <laughs> a moment. But he says, paganism, unable to transcend time, seeks a last and highest temporal bond mm. of which all other societal relationships can be no more than dependent mm. parts. Christianity does not place a temporal church institute above the state as an ultimate bond, but in Christ it looks beyond time toward the total theocracy, the invisible church of Christ. Here, all temporal societal relationships are rooted and grounded, and each of these, after its own divine structure and God-given law, must be an expression, be it an imperfect one, of that invisible kingdom of God. This basic Christian idea of the kingdom of God is the only possible ground for the Christian idea of the state, which is a lovely, concise summary. And he goes on to simply point out, and I like the punch in this, because some listeners might say, well, okay, uh, we hear what you've said, but uh, you know, there's all kinds of Christian views of the state. He goes on to say, we must protest also when other views which reject this sphere sovereignty because they have compromised with pagan philosophy are considered as at least comparable Christian views. There is only one Christian view concerning human relationships 
which indeed takes seriously without compromise the scriptural principle of the kingdom of God. Hmm. And I think that's the, that's the fundamental difference that we're dealing with right now in the confrontation between certain actors within the secular state who see themselves essentially beyond transcendent mm-hmm. law. The state is final law. It's parts mm-hmm. to whole. The church is just a part of the subservient part of the state. It must do what, it, it must do what it's told. Mm. Uh, and those who say, no, we will accept the authority of the state within the limits which God has given to it, mm. uh, but where it transgresses those limits and requires of us something to, to disobey something that God requires of us, we must uh, draw a line in the sand. And just, sorry, Michael, before you begin there, I mean, we, I think, are very much aware that our culture is continually going down this path of rejecting the transcendent, rejecting the notion of the kingdom of God. It should make sense that we'd be looking to the state above all else to take control, because what else would take control? Yeah, certainly. And going back to Ryan's question, because all of this foundation is so important, when Ryan asked that first question, so what would, what's behind a man sitting in jail over this issue? Hmm. And, you know, specifically the press release around his, uh, the, how his bail hearing went poorly would be that he could not in good conscience agree to the state's conditions. And, and even in your first quote, Joe, you, you, you mentioned that, um, Kuiper was seeing something. And so what is it, what does it take for a man to go sit in jail over this issue is that by his conscience, he's observing the overreach and he is doing something about it. You know, we have a rich understanding of the conscience in our Christian history. William Ames defines conscience as a man's judgment of himself, according to the judgment of God on him. And Richard Sims writes, the conscience is God's spy into our bosoms. So James, presumably, uh, we've we've talked to enough of his church family around him, and we've talked to his lawyers, is looking at this overreach that Joe is describing and saying, by my conscience before God, I cannot agree to your state's terms. And then you ask the second question, why would the state when it's doing all this ridiculous things, mm-hmm. uh, letting other prisoners go and things like that, keep a man like that in jail. And Joe answered it. Mm. And I just want to add my two cents to that. It is because the, um, the political force of the state right now is revealing a deeper spiritual sickness within our country and particularly within those who are leading our country. Mm-hmm. And so again, why would they keep him in jail? Like we think it's just unconscionable. They're keeping him there because their policies and their actions right now are really revealing how spiritually sick they are, how, how really responsible they feel to play the role of God in this situation. So Joe, I just really appreciated all that foundational work. And I think it's very logical to understand why a guy who's seeing all of this, uh, these actions happen is trying Mm -hmm. to take a stand. And then you can actually understand why they're keeping him in jail. 
it's it's not good. It's revealing that they're spiritually sick. Now, of course, um, some people will say, well, you know, this is the function of the state to preserve the common good. Mm-hmm. And it's in the in the interest of the common good to uh, have pedophiles roaming Alberta and 25% of the prison population uh, out um, and having a pastor in. Now, of course, that's I struggle to follow the logic, but let's just assume for a moment uh, the the common good is part of the, uh, the 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 function of the state in terms of its public legal duty. Um, the difficulty we've got now, and and the question that is begged when Christians put that forward, is what is the common good? How mm. is the mm. common good to be defined? And the expectation that some people seem to have is that this is a self-interpreting statement. Um, but when you consider what the humanistic pagan view of the state is, right, we talked about that totalizing idea that it relates to all the other spheres of life in parts to whole fashion. The common good there is the preservation of that wholeness, right? It's the preservation of order yeah, that's right. in terms of the absolute authority uh, of the state. And uh, this brings us, of course, into a... Um, uh, significant problem um where the state tries to make itself then um the the wellspring of justice itself Mm -hmm. it gets to define Mm -hmm. what the common good is Mm -hmm. but from a christian standpoint that isn't the case uh it's god who defines what the good is and the problem that we have of course in the late modern world is that even with the classical liberal who would say well yes you know and you hear this a lot from christians uh you know, the state's job is the common good. It should really just be concerned with preserving some basic and fundamental rights. Mm-hmm. Individual Individual rights, yeah. and that's, you know, these are the things that it should protect. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, certainly it is to protect certain basic rights. The problem is, is that the late modern world has expanded the litany of rights mm-hmm. that people mm-hmm. supposedly have. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it's an ever-expanding list of rights so that the state now... On those terms, on the, along the idea of it's just it's just there to protect basic rights, it then invades every single area of life mm. to enforce these this, these new rights of the common good mm-hmm. upon us, not respecting in any way sphere sovereignty and the delimitation of jurisdiction, and so. That's the answer to the to, to these Christians who uh, think that we can have some sort of um, neutral procedural system called, you know, liberal democracy and, you know, contractarianism. We haven't got time to really talk now about the details of, uh, of, of uh, liberal contractarian uh, philosophy. But the basic idea of it, it, of it is that man is sovereign and ultimately the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's individuals who come together and agree to live in a particular way, and then they delegate that freedom to the state. That was Rousseau's uh, basic idea. And that idea is expanded to such a degree now that we talk about society as being democratic. So we say, we live in a democratic society. My answer to that is, no, we do not. Mm. Um, Democracy... uh, is supposed to mean the way in which a government is installed. It's elected. 
Uh, but with Rousseau's fundamental idea of democracy, you had the idea of a complete leveling principle so that um, we must, which has been at work in our politics now for, for in, in the West for a very long time, where you have a radical egalitarian idea that society, it's not just that you that the way in which a government is installed is democratic, which we would agree with, that it's elected, but that society itself is to be democratic. Well, mm. the family isn't a democracy. That's part of society. The church is not a democracy. That's part of society. Certainly not outside in any way of its own limits, right? So not only is it a democracy within the home, but I, I certainly don't ask 15 other people how I'm supposed to treat my wife within the confines of my home. Like there, there's no, there's no, there's limits. You, you, yes. The, and, and, you know, we don't, you know, nobody elected me to be a father. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, nobody voted for me. I don't take a vote on with the kids on what the rules in the house are going to be. Right. Um, the church isn't a democracy. We don't vote on what doctrines are going to be uh, followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a church government is not democratic. Right. Um, even in Baptist circles, Michael. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> so the, 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 the fact is, is that we've, we've got such a distorted picture now of Christians of what, state and society, what politics is meant to look like mm-hmm. and how everything has been, all these issues now because of the expansion of these rights, everything's been politicized. So if you accept the view that says, don't bring the gospel and Christianity into politics, don't bring it into the church, you've got very little left to actually talk about with respect to God's reign, Christ's lordship. It becomes mm. so narrow that it's basically, you know, Jesus is Lord between your ears and maybe in the innermost depths of your heart so that you can go to heaven. Can I ask you uh, just to rewind for um, Nathan? He was having a hard time keeping up. Um, Joe, so when you explained the current view of the state, it seemed to me that you were saying that the common good, according to statism, is the preservation of the state. Mm-hmm. Is that is that like there is an inherent desire within that philosophy to simply self-preserve yes that uh that that the common good ultimately if the if the structure of society is a relationship of parts to whole with the state and even the roman catholic view did not escape this with right. the uh with the doctrine of subsidiarity which we haven't got time to discuss now but um then obviously the good for society, the, to preserve good order, means this total jurisdiction of mm. the state uh, and not the recognition and protection by the state of the distinct private legal orders which exist um, within society, what we might call civil private law. There's civil law and there's, of course, civil private law. Um, so that the, the state has historically in the West not been allowed to walk all over the family and the church hmm. and other um, institutional life, yeah. business, and involve itself, even even medicine to me, a big part of the problem we're facing today, even in the current crisis, is the state's um, interference and control of the whole area of medicine to the point where doctors are barely able to express an opinion on what's going on um, politically in their name. Well, and that, that's the other thing I just wanted to rewind because, you know... Uh it's an important concept to get across. And I think you went through it really quick, but 
you said it's almost like in the name of individualism, the individual has been removed in the name of all of these rights. Yep. The government has reached right in to everybody's life. Yes, um, there's an expectation that the individual must delegate now in within the social contract, hmm. delegates their freedom to the state. And we're even in the name with this. of the individual's rights. Yeah. 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 No, that's really helpful. It's interesting as, as you talk about rights and you talk about this ever expanding sort of slate of what, what our rights are. Mm. It's interesting to like the uh, the rights, the commandments, the laws of scripture by and large are phrased negatively that like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. You know, you have a right not to be stolen from. I have an obligation to uphold that right, but I don't have to do anything to mm. fulfill that obligation. Like I'm just sitting here not stealing from you. Mm. Yeah, but if, you know, if rights are conceived of positively, yeah. You know, if, if I have to do some, if you have a right to, yeah. you know, a chocolate milkshake and I like, now I have to go off and do something or take mm -hmm. money from somebody else in, in a tax to make sure that you get that, mm. yeah. that milkshake. That's my right for you to go and do this for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, and it makes sense that these expanding rights, uh, you know, we need them in place if we're going to achieve this kind of egalitarian uh, utopian ideal that we, you know, that we've been striving for. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, there's, there's a fabulous, uh, uh, statement that, um, the Polish philosopher Ryzard Legutko makes, and I actually quote it in my uh, little monograph for government, um, uh, that kind of captures the, the, the contemporary mood very well. He says, what we have been observing over the last decades is an emergence of a kind of liberal democratic general will. Whether the meaning of the term itself is identical with that used by Rousseau is of negligible significance. The fact is that we have been more and more exposed to an overwhelming liberal, de liberal democratic omnipresence, mm. which seems mm. independent of the will of individuals to which they humbly submit and which they perceive as compatible with their innermost feelings. This will permeates public and private lives, emanates from media, expresses itself through common wisdom and persistently brazen stereotypes through educational curricula, from kindergartens to universities and through works of art. This liberal democratic general will does not recognize geographical or political borders. Hmm. The liberal democratic general will reaches the area that Rousseau never dreamed of, language, gestures, and thoughts. This will ruthlessly imposes liberal democratic patterns on everything and everyone. And that's the point. Now, some people will say, well, yes, but don't you just want to have Christianity imposed on everybody? Aren't you the Christian mm. Taliban mm -hmm. uh, training radicals uh, to... Uh, to, 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 to turn, you know, Canada into a theocracy. There's a subject we'll pick up. But, uh, was, it, was that wrong? <laughs> Should we not have done that? <laughs> and, and, and the reason that uh, the people often think that is because they don't recognize, they're actually thinking in precisely those statist terms. They're thinking as philosophical statists, as totalitarians. Because what they imagine is that the proper function of the government is to impose into all these different areas of life the way that the current liberal democratic egalitarian mm -hmm. agenda is being imposed into every area of life, that that would be the task of a 
Christian state. Um, but that's simply not the case. Mm. It's the principle of sphere sovereignty ensures that these different areas of life are all under God, but they're not under an, a particular ecclesiastical order. They don't have to be a Baptist Christian order, a Presbyterian Christian order, a Catholic Christian order, that the state would have to su- sign up to some very p- particular dogmatic confession of the church. What's required in politics the, with the idea of a, uh, of, a, of a Christian state? In fact, let me, um, let me just quote what um, uh, uh, Doiver says here about the nature of a Christian state here. Uh, let me find it. We'll be right back after this short message. As Western society steadily abandons its historic foundations, young people today face a constant stream of cultural challenges at the very roots of reality. Will your teens be prepared to confront the godless ideologies that surround them and confidently live out the truth of God's word? The Worldview Leadership Camp is designed to help equip young people to joyfully and faithfully defend the Christian worldview in the face of the intellectual and practical challenges of today. At the Worldview Leadership Camp, you'll enjoy outdoor activities, archery, and campfires, but you'll also be challenged in your thinking, grow in your faith, and build community in a whole new way. This year we are hosting Junior Week, August 15th to the 20th, and Senior Week, August 22nd to the 27th. Register today at EzraInstitute.ca and arm yourself with a worldview that brings every thought captive to Christ and His Word. And if you bring a friend who is new to camp, both of you will receive $50 off your registration. So Doivert says, and I quote, the notion that the Christian state must recognize a certain denomination as state church, or at least as the only true church, or that the Christian state must lend to a certain creed as alone true, the status of official legal authority, essentially stems from this old conception of Roman scholasticism, which ascribes the totality of all temporal revelation of the body of Christ to just such a temporal church institute. In other words, Christian, a Christian view of politics is, a, is about a Christian con- political confession, not a Christian ecclesiastical confession. It's mm-hmm. about a recognition of God, his sovereignty, a recognition of revelation, mm-hmm. of our obligations to God's higher law, and of a, the, the, the basis of social unity being built around a common commitment in those societies that bear a broadly Christian stamp. You can't impose this from the top down mm-hmm. it must be something that's fundamentally fundamentally grassroots it has to have that uh basically christian stamp and within that the difference is that this principle of sphere sovereignty the family the church the state education government uh are have their own private spheres of authority in which government and state is not imposing itself and its idea into mm-hmm. all these different areas of life and this seems to be an incredible area of confusion to me that this has not been uh, thought through properly um, or correctly, that that's what we mean to think Christianly, to defend the Christian view of the Christian philosophy of life for the political sphere. Um, it's, and it fundamentally starts with the Lordship of Jesus Christ, not as some abstract principle for the sweet by and by, uh, but for now in our concrete human societal relationships where uh, Jesus Christ really is recognized um, as, as king. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Joe. 
I want to uh, flip it back over to Mike here because Mike, you've been uh, active for the past few months with a a decidedly political venture to try to uh, try to proclaim the lordship of Jesus there in the public square, and I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about uh, what you've been doing and what the what your goals are here. Yeah, thanks for asking, Ryan. Um, I've been involved with an organization called Liberty Coalition Canada. Um, I'm currently serving as the campaign manager for the group. Uh, The coalition is birthed out of the reopen Ontario churches campaign that was run last spring. And uh, as you know, Joe and Dr. Aaron rock and myself uh, uh, put together the Niagara 2020 declaration. And out of those two initiatives that Joe and Aaron worked on, and then I worked on with them, we just had pastors asking us, what are we going to do? Like this was before James was in prison. This was, this was maybe when one or two pastors had tickets, but what are we really going to do? Or if we're not allowed to go back into our churches for the next two years, because of this situation, are we just going to stand by and, and let that be? And so what we did is we gathered a number of, um, people together, a number of other uh, key pastors joined into the coalition. And then we started hearing from lawyers, Christian lawyers. We started hearing from different legal groups and we started hearing from politicians who uh, wanted to join with us. So we've established five initiatives for the Liberty Coalition Canada. Uh, We've got an end the lockdowns caucus, which is uh, we are working directly with politicians in order to um, table motions on uh, the floors uh, at all three levels of government. Uh, we have a, a hashtag save our youth initiative. And that initiative is to get uh, wonderful moms who are serious about uh, their, their children's future, getting online and getting involved with social media. I'll go through the initiatives and then I'll kind of explain why we think it's Christian. Uh, or at least Christianly rooted. Uh, we're trying to help uh, open small businesses. We think that small businesses have been treated horrifically. Uh, certainly, they are not getting fair treatment in the eyes of the law. They're not getting a fair treatment before the law. Uh, of course, we think the churches must gather as we come to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday this year. We mark another year, which as far as we can tell, will be preceded by another announcement of a lockdown. We're watching, you know, previous trends and hearing from insiders who are warning us. And so we think that there's going to be another problem with attending church during our, uh, one of our most sacred assemblies of the year. And then finally, really exciting. Last week we launched uh, professionals against lockdowns. And so these are healthcare professionals, lawyers, um, and police officers who are willing to start speaking up against lockdowns. So we are trying to, in this coalition, interact with a whole number of groups to influence the political sphere. And I I think something that Joe talked about both on the state side of things where they feel they need to 
uh, permeate through or transcend through every, every sphere. And then we talked about the Roman Catholic view where the Roman Catholic view uh, puts the church uh, in some type of hierarchy. We are of the opinion that the church ought to be a prophetic voice calling out to give great influence to the political sphere. And um, we are using our, our Christian worldview. We are using uh, the scriptures. We are proclaiming the gospel as we go, as we work with all of these groups in order to influence the political world back towards the Lordship of Christ. So I'm really excited about all of our initiatives. You know, our End the Lockdowns Caucus has over 50 members of the caucus and over 36,000 supporters. Our hashtag Save Our Youth has been used over 36,000 times on Facebook as of now. Our Reopen Ontario Churches campaign is reaching into at least seven of the province uh, provinces. Uh, Joe was just on a call last week with a number of the pastors that are reaching out to us from across Canada. Um, open small businesses have had some real success with uh, what went on down in Toronto with a number of businesses opening and then the, the government listening to that and, and pretending like they weren't listening, but actually listening. And then just recently in our area of the Simcoe region, uh, the health unit lifted some advisories because there was such a public backlash for small businesses. And then finally, this is really exciting. Like this has just been up a day or two, but because we're working with professionals now, we, we put out two videos from professionals. We have one from doctors in one day, it's had 46,000 views. And we also put up a video from Dave Redman, who is an emergency management operator. And that has had over 85,000 views on Twitter. And mm. Uh, 15,000 views on YouTube proper. Yeah. And Michael, I was just going to mention important to note that first video about the doctors was taken down by YouTube within an hour of being put up, wasn't it? Yeah. Nate, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I got to tell you, you know how the whole world of conspiracy, like every, you know, when Joe mentions the word statism, I feel like half the audience is like, oh, there's there's another conspiracy out there. Like meaning, meaning some of these words just, our, uh, our culture just so immediately spits back conspiracy theory. But no, we put up this video. Uh, actually, I think the Western Standard uh, newspaper uh, has already covered the story. And I think uh, we're going to iPolitics uh, is covering the story. We put it up at 10, 17, I believe, a.m. yesterday morning. And it, great traction. I was immediately getting text, signal, communication, emails, everybody. This is great, 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 great. By 1037, it was down off of YouTube. And if you look, if you look at the video, it's medical experts that you would walk into their offices, every single one of these doctors. And if they had given this type of advice to you as a patient, you wouldn't have bat an eyelash at it. It was sound, good, Let's not be overly fearful of COVID advice. So yeah, there, there is a battle being war, uh, waged right now. It's a war uh, and we're seeing it firsthand. So we're just trying in this, uh, the, the way that um, you guys are talking here at the Ezra Institute, 
we are trying to take that lordship of Christ. And as we do that, uh, proclaim the gospel as we go to influence public policy. And we think that's honoring to the Lord. I think that's a, it's a critical point that the, the calling of the church, you know, mm. uh, uh, as an, as an institution, right? The church Institute is to be this prophetic witness. Mm-hmm. We talked about the state's role, but part of the church's role is to be that prophetic witness to oppose the spirit of apostasy that's there in, in political life. And we're reminding the government that all authority comes from God, is derived from God, and is subject to Him. I mean, that's what we're that's what we're doing. That's what we would that's what the Christian is called to do with respect to civil authority to be that uh, to be that uh, reminder. And so I think um, as we as we sort of wrestle as churches, as church leaders, as Christians with this issue asking ourselves what is the prophetic witness of the church at this time and remembering that when we speak about the gospel, the declaration of the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. We worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ who brings us into his kingdom. And it's his kingdom that is the overarching reality that is central to all of human history. It's the rule and reign of, of God in Christ. So when we engage in the things that you're talking about, Michael, and the things that you've described, this is not some sign of secondary, distracting, unimportant, or oh, that's nice for you if you like that kind of thing. What's really important is me, Jesus, and my Bible. This is a manifestation, yeah. however imperfect it may be, right. when we uh, call people to recognize the Lordship of Christ and the authority of his word revelation, that is, however imperfectly, a manifest, just as it's imperfect in our churches. The kingdom is not manifest perfectly in our churches any right. more than it's manifest perfectly in your family or in the state. However imperfect, it is nonetheless a manifestation of the gospel of the kingdom. Yeah, and that solves three problems, two of them that you mentioned and a third one that we haven't talked about yet. It solves the problem of when we talk about uh, promoting the lordship of Christ publicly, are we talking about a church trying to be the government. No, we're talking about the prophetic voice of the church calling out for redemption into the real world, into the, into the, in this case, into the political realm. Number two, it solves that issue that you talked about of it's got to be grassroots. This is something that I, you and I, all of us in this room are actually experiencing, experiencing this wonderfully that I think most people who are not involved in the game are not experiencing this. What we are experiencing is we have so many gospel opportunities to mm-hmm. share the mm-hmm. gospel while we proclaim the Lordship. Mm-hmm. So when a politician is sitting with me saying, well, that's great. Why in the world do you believe that? Like, why are you helping? Why? Why? Well, it, it's because Jesus is Lord. The You need to be saved by the blood of Christ and you need to live in the life of the resurrection and you can't have it both ways. You can't have the, you can't have the resurrected life without the, without the, the Lord of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And most politicians in our secular world think that you can, they all want to have some form of base abundant morality life. an yeah. abund- mm-hmm. abundant life, but they all want to reject, uh, the God who gives that abundant mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing that it solves and that's the, actually, you did bring that up just at the last second. 
it brings up this issue that we keep talking about. Well, what is the church good for then? Like, I'm going to proclaim the gospel to whom? Well, I'm not going to proclaim it politically. I'm not going to proclaim it in the education system. I'm not going to proclaim it uh, when I'm at the gym. I'm not going to proclaim it for that one individual once a year who asks me a question, then I'll share my faith. And so we, we've just grown accustomed to this closet Christianity. Mm. So we're saying in the name of the gospel, we're not going to get involved in political talk when the opposite is true. You, you manifest the kingdom and you explain things. You have great gospel opportunities and it brings you into the real world so you're not living this compartmentalized life. It solves everything when we see ourselves as the prophetic witness proclaiming the gospel as we go, trying to influence and these things. And that question lands in real history, hmm. in real human institutions, and in real trials. Uh, when the, I was thinking about this today when the Lord Jesus is being tried by a pagan state hmm. and Pilate brings him out and says, behold your king, the people who actually were the religious leaders who said that they were the ones who taught the word of God said, we have no king but Caesar. Mm. We have no king but Caesar. That was a religious declaration, um, and it was a political declaration. Absolutely. These two are not separable. Jesus Christ claims to be Lord. Behold your king. We have no king but Caesar. Mm-hmm. And that, that led to, of course, within the providence and the mercy of God, he took that, the, the wickedness of and the, the, the deception and the sham of that trial and worked our redemption and salvation. Not so that we could go and live a life of sham and a denial that Jesus is king and that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm-hmm. And this is what the early apostles were uh, accused of doing in Acts chapter 17 in the early verses there. They were accused of saying that there is another king, Jesus and, and therefore, this Bible is explicit, disobeying the decrees of Caesar. There is an inherent political dimension to the gospel because the gospel involves real life and the totality of our lives. We can't sequester the gospel inside the institutional church or inside the family or inside my head. The gospel of the reign and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ and his reconciliation of all things to God is germane in every single area of life Mm. yeah it it transcends Mm -hmm. every single unlike the state Mm -hmm. and by the way that they didn't actually believe that caesar was their king that that's again just politicians being politicians so you know now that we're into this political world a, a politician without an ideology is a politician who will just back and forth on the whim of every health doctrine, on the whim of every poll, mm. on the whim of every opinion. And then you're left with two alternatives. You've got those types of politicians and you have the politicians with an ideology. And that ideology is either from the kingdom of Satan, an ideology rooted in the imagination of men, which Joe, you've brought up so well in the mission of God or rooted in the character of God. There's, there's, there's wishy-washy politicians who are just there to get elected. There's the, uh, 
activists on either side and there's no neutrality anywhere because the people who are just the sham trial people, they're not neutral. They're just trying to keep their spots. Mm -hmm. So those are great thoughts. And that's why a cultural apologetic has to be applied in the political arena. There is a, there's a defense of the Christian view of politics and we're learning this past year. I think the church is having a better lesson in how important that apologetic actually is. Mm -hmm. That's a great closing thought, Joe. Mike, thanks a lot for being here. Nate, Joe, pleasure as always. Thank you for listening. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, the, la the latest episode of Worldview Wednesday, and we're reminding you that from him, through him, and to him are all things. To God be the glory. We'll see you next week. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time